Well, if I were to ask you what is the best, the greatest chapter in the Bible, what would you answer? It's a kind of a tricky question, right? Um, because almost, uh, this question almost suggests that there are certain parts of the Bible that are, I don't know, less impactful or less important or maybe less inspired than others, but that is not uh, what I'm asking. Think of it this way. If you had 15 minutes left to live, you were going away, and you had someone by your bedside, and you would pick up your Bible and you would hand your Bible to them, what passage would you want them to read to you in that moment? Think about this. Would it, would it be First Chronicles, first eight chapters, for instance? First Chronicles, first eight chapters, they're great chapters. They're inspired chapters, but they contain about a thousand names, just name after name after name after name after name, right? Or, or maybe it would be another passage. Um, Many have reflected over church history, over centuries, that um, the, the best chapter is the one that you are currently in today. <laughs> and that is so true, especially for preachers, right? What is the best book of the Bible? It's the one that you're reading this week. It's the best chapter. What's the best verse? Well, it's the one that you're meditating on, and, and this is rightly so. But for many, the book of Romans is the greatest book, the greatest letter of this book, of the 66 books of the Bible. Because Romans articulates for us most clearly and comprehensively the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation. And the greatest chapter in that greatest book is chapter eight, Romans chapter eight. Now, why is this? Why is this? Well, if you've read Romans, and I would encourage you as we are reading and studying through Romans for the next 10 to 12 weeks, I want to uh, just encourage you, congregation, to read through Romans. Read through Romans, and better yet, I want to challenge you to memorize as we go through Romans chapter 8, memorize Romans chapter 8. I know some of you have already memorized this chapter, but if you can, 39 verses memorize, we have about 12 weeks, so that's no big deal. We can go through it, memorize this great chapter. Now, if you've read, or if you can kind of go through Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way up to 8, um, if you're familiar with the landscape of Romans, you might recall that Romans 1 through 7, Paul tells us about the wrath of God and how to be saved from his wrath, right? Romans 1 through 7 tells us how to have a right standing with a holy God. He answers in these chapters how a perfectly holy God can justify guilty sinners and at the same time still remain just. So in some sense, Romans 1 through 7 is, answers this question, how can God justify those who cannot be justified because of their sin and still remain just and uphold his righteousness? But in Romans 8, in these 39 verses that follow, Paul here writes about the implication of our justification. The result after we are saved, after we believe in this gospel. So the primary focus of Romans chapter 8 is not necessarily how you become a believer. That's Romans 1 through 7. But what does your faith in Christ or how does your faith in Christ make a difference in your daily life now after you are saved? In other words, another way to, to think about this is what difference does the spirit make in the life of a believer? Because being saved means that you now have the spirit of Christ dwelling in you. So what does it mean to walk by the spirit or be filled with the spirit? And it's amazing, go with me to Romans chapter eight if you're not there yet. He begins this chapter with this amazing pronouncement. There is now no condemnation, no condemnation. And if you flip to the very end of this chapter, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. No condemnation 
to no separation from God. And in the middle, in the middle, verses 5 through basically verse 30, is this section of, you can maybe summarize it by no fear. There are no regrets. There's no hopelessness for the believer. You may find yourself hopeless and thinking, didn't I believe the, don't I believe the gospel? Don't I believe that Jesus is Lord? That he has the power to overcome my sin? What is going on in my battle with sin? Well, then Paul in Romans chapter eight deals with that question. If you're in Christ and he is in you, friend, you will never be forsaken or forgotten no matter how great your struggle is. That is the promise of Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, God's statement to his people is this, I will always save you. I will always keep you because I always love you. No condemnation and no separation. And this morning, we're going to look at the first two, really one and a half verses of Romans chapter 8. We're going to spend some time here in this book. We're going to go much slower than we have through the gospel of Matthew. And um, we will just revel in the glories of the gospel and the effect that it has on our life. And uh, for the next few weeks, I just pray that as we marinate in these verses, that God would just do mighty work in us, in our thinking, in our perspective on Christian life, and in our walk, so that we could truly love Christ more and walk by the Spirit as he describes what that looks like here in these verses. So Romans chapter 8, I want to just read first four verses, first four verses, and we will begin to look at Romans. Romans 8, 1, therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh." so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So I want us to consider verse 1 primarily this morning and what it means that there is no condemnation. And the way we're going to frame our thoughts is just with these two ideas here. Okay? And the, the, the big proposition here that I have for you as we begin to unpack this chapter is this, to recall your condemnation in Adam so that you may taste the sweetness of your freedom in Christ. We as believers, especially those of us who have been saved for a while, we must constantly recall our condemnation in Adam so that the glories that we experience, the freedom of Christ that we experience must must taste sweet. So I really have just two simple points for us to consider here. Number one is to recall your condemnation in Adam, and number two, savor your freedom in Christ. Savor your freedom in Christ. And I want first of all, in verse eight, I want us to consider the opening the opening verse here and the opening word of the first verse, therefore. Now, I understand some of your other translations, therefore is written um, later, there is now therefore, no condemnation, but really therefore. And um, I hope by now you've seen the pattern, right, in our preaching that uh, when we come to the text, we must give Attention, we must pay attention to the connecting markers here in the text, especially if we're just parachuting right down in the, really the middle of Paul's epistle to Romans, Paul's letter to Romans, right? And so we must pay attention to words that tie different verses, that tie chapters and and maybe greater context and sections. Well, Paul here, he is making a conclusion from something that he has said already in this epistle, therefore. So based on what I've said so far, here is the implication of what I am saying. Now, 
It's debated whether he is referring to just chapter seven, maybe the last verses of chapter seven, or, or the entirety of the uh, previous section that he had written, but it seems that this statement here is directly connected to Romans chapter five. So go back here, and we're gonna spend a lot of time this morning in Romans, in the first section of Romans, Romans one um, through three and, and parts of five as well. And it seems that Paul is connecting here specifically to what he had already written in Romans 5, 16 through 18. Let's read this together. Romans 5, 16 through 18. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. So there is a thing called condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted, what? Condemnation to all men. Even through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So notice that Paul here, he goes back, all the way back to the first man. He goes all the way back to Adam. He goes all the way back to Genesis, and he makes a connection to Christ. Somehow, Christ is similar to Adam. And notice that this condemnation, he is not saying that it's for Adam only, like Adam is condemned. No, he says, for all men. So as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So friends here, we must then pay attention because it concerns us, not just Adam and Eve, but this condemnation spreads to all men. So I want us to go then to Genesis. For a few minutes here, we're gonna spend and we're gonna observe some very important uh, truths here in order to grasp how we're affected by Adam's work. Please go with me to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one, and I want us to just spend a few minutes here. In Genesis chapter one, we know what it's all about. This is the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the creation account, creation of the world, creation of men. And we find out here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that we were, man was, all of us, all of humanity, we were created to derive our purpose from God. It's one thing we have to understand. In order to understand our function, we must go back to the beginning, where it started. And we were created to derive our purpose from God. Look what he says in Genesis 1:23. Then God said, this is God saying, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we can spend a series of sermons talking about the image of God and what it means and perhaps this topic here is maybe one of the most misunderstood maybe because very little is directly said about the image of God. But when we look at these verses here in particular, it means really two things for us here. Number one is that we belong to God as his children. We belong to God as his children, children as images of their parents. That's pretty clear. God created us in his own image so that we may represent him. Number two, it means that we are rulers in God's creation. Just as God is the sovereign rule of all the universe, the entire thing that was created, he created it for himself. Well, he created men so that men can rule on behalf of him, right? And let them rule, verse 26. So friends, we were created to derive our purpose, to derive our value, not from our friends, not from our careers, not from our positions, not from our own identities, whatever we wanna do, that's what we do, but from God alone. He created us so that we may represent him in his image and to do it in the way that he wants it to be done. It's his world, right? He put his own people 
to do what he wants to be done. It's very simple. We confuse this whole situation here, but it's really simple. It's his, we are his, we are to live for him. We were created to derive our purpose from God. Now, second, I want you to see that we were created to depend on God's generosity, to depend on God's. If we're going to fulfill what he wants us to fulfill, then he got to give us everything. He has to be a generous provider. And so we see in verses 29, for instance, then God says in chapter one, behold, I've given you everything. Every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be for you. I've given you everything. We were created to be, friends, dependent people. He didn't create us and says, you know, okay, go build that garden and you're on your own. No, I'm going to give you everything. I'm going to take care of you. You are not to be independent. You are not to be self-sufficient. We were designed to have needs and have all of our needs fulfilled in God. And isn't this amazing thing that God, friends, he is not stingy with his people. He says, you have needs, but I've given you everything that you need. I'm gonna supply your every single need. He is so generous. We have everything. Look at verse 31. God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And guess what? All that very good was given to men. Here, use it. It's yours. So we were created to derive our purpose from God. We were created to depend on his generosity. But friends, unfortunately, everything unraveled rather quickly. Chapter 3, we know what happened. We question God's good intentions and his authority. God's arch enemy, Satan, he shows up and he plants seeds of doubt in Eve. And the way he does that is he begins to misrepresent God. And look what in verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Is that really what he said? No. The answer is absolutely not. That is not what God said. In fact, it's the very opposite of, God, of what God said. He said, from any tree you shall eat. In chapter two, the emphasis is eat everything but one. And Satan comes around and he says, yeah, it's that one, right? It's that one. He said, you shall not eat. And if Eve was just um, in her right mind, would assess and would rehearse the word of God, then she would say, no, absolutely not. That's not what he said. He said we can have it all. But he causes us to begin to doubt God's generosity, to make God's word look restrictive, to make God himself look stingy, ultimately unloving. And he wants us to question God's good intention and his generous heart for his creation. So Eve here, instead of focusing on God's word, she misquotes God's word back to Satan and Satan succeeds. She begins to doubt God's good goodness towards her. And she begins to think, you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe God is restrictive. Why did he put us in this garden? Look at everything else that's out there. Maybe we should go out and maybe we should go and see there's more to it than, than he's telling us, right? Maybe it would be better just to throw right, the sovereign rule of God off and just do what we want to do, live the way we want to live our life. And so we come to the next observation is that we choose to follow self rather than God. In verse 4 here, Satan invites Eve to define her own good. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Now, that's a contradiction to what God said. God said, in the day you eat, you will die. And Satan invites her to think and define her own good. Why do you need to follow God? Follow your heart, right? Do you. You do you. Pursue your own happiness outside of God. You know, govern yourself. Choose what's right in your own eyes. Don't worry about what God thinks. And so we see in verse 6 here that Eve saw the fruit, took the fruit, ate the fruit, and shared the fruit 
with Adam. And because Adam was the head representative of all mankind, he plunged the entire human race into sin. I want you to go back to Romans now, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 12. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Death spread to all men. And then verse 18, which we already read, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Friends, this The problem here is not Adam's alone. We are guilty. We all choose self over God. This sin spread through all of Adam's posterity. And if you don't believe me, then look at what he said in Romans 3, 23. It's a Sunday school verse that we memorized many, many years ago, right? The adults in this room. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without any exception, all, everybody, falls short. All sinned and fall short. When we think of this, this phrase, fall short, what do we think? You know, we often think of falling short is God has, God, the holy God, he has this, you know, high and righteous lofty standard. And we sinners, guilty sinners, we, we shoot, we shoot really high, but man, we just fall short, you know? We, we didn't make the cut. We were almost there, but we missed the mark a little bit. You know, we try really, really hard. But the verse doesn't say that, that we're all tried and, and we haven't reached the glorious standard. That's not what this verse says. Now, it's true that God has a standard, his perfect law, and we're not capable of reaching it, this perfect standard. But, but there's something deeper here in this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin is not a mere breaking of the command that God gives in essence, our sin is not just something we, we do, don't do to the law, like we don't obey or we fail to do. No, our sin is something that we do to God who gives the law. Notice the difference. It's not just the breaking of the law. It's something that affects God and who he is. To fall short means to come up short, to come up lacking, to, to no longer possess something. What? The glory of God. What is the glory of God? The, the word glory here, it, it describes God's perfection of his character or his, his perfect majesty, the, the heavy radi- heaviness, right? Heavy radiance of all that God is. But because we sin, we are guilty before God and we are unable then to stand in his majesty. We, we don't measure up. And when God looks down on us, when he requires of us his glory to to fully and perfectly dwell with him, to represent him in all that he is, like he is, we realize that we no longer have what it takes. We're no longer in possession of his glory. We don't no longer reflect this awesome and amazing God. And the question is, what happened to it? What, What do we do what happened to it? And if we go back to Romans chapter 1, and I want you to go there, then we find out that, you know, what happened to it is not that we tried and oh, we, we didn't get it. Sorry, God. No, we, we actually gave it all up. We exchanged, we traded the glory of God for things that are infinitely less than God. We did it. It's not like we tried and failed. No, we knowingly, not ignorantly, knowingly did it. And that's exactly what Adam did in the garden. And that's exactly what each descendant of Adam continues to do. Follow self rather than God. Verse 18 of chapter 1, I want us to read. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give them thanks. 
but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and our four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over. Therefore, God gave them over. You know, after introducing this epistle, what, what Paul read here, verses 1 through 17, you know what Paul does? Paul goes straight to the jugular. It's like, here's the noose. And he says, God is angry. God is angry with ungodly and unrighteous men and women. And that's all, all of humanity. Left, friends, left to ourselves, that's, that's you and I. God reveals his wrath. Why? why? Lord, why are you angry? Why do you reveal your wrath? Well, because we hold down and we suppress this truth, he says. Who suppress literally means you hold it down. Like, like the truth wants to be out in the open, but you hide it and you suppress it. Like, no, no, I, I don't want to obey. I don't want to acknowledge. I don't want to worship. I don't want to thank God. That's what we do. What, what truth? What truth? Well, it's the truth about God that is visible in all creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. When we look around us, when we see God in creation, our natural response must be to embrace the creator, must be to seek, must be to find, to worship this God, to give thanks for everything. We wake up, we give thanks. We drink, we give thanks. We do whatever we do. We do it because God is generous and he gives us the ability and the capacity to do it. And we don't. We don't embrace. We don't worship. What do we do? We reject, we suppress we hold down that truth in unrighteousness. We behave, friends, just like our parents in the garden did. So if anybody here is wondering whether you would succeed in the garden or whether you would do better than Adam and Eve did, no. We all had it, and in Adam we all sinned, and we would all do it because you still do it. We think we're wise in rejecting God and following ourselves, but in the end we are fools professing to be wise, they became fools. We think following our own selves is a good idea. And he says this, fools, verse 23, and here's the kicker, who exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. You know, Romans 1.23 explains Romans 3.23. Romans 1.23 explains Romans 3.23. Why did we fall short of the glory of God? God's majesty, his, his radiance and all that he is, we come up short. Why? Because we throw it away, we exchange it for something else. What is this something else? It's stuff. Stuff. What, what stuff? We exchange it for an image in the form of a corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. We want the created rather than the creator. Listen, this is exactly what happened in the garden. God, the generous God, he gave them everything. He gave them all the trees, everything, all the fruits. And he says, don't, don't eat this. But we went after the fruit and said, forget the one who commanded us. Forget God. We trade away the glory of God for images of man, friends, because the image we love the most is the one we see in the mirror. That's why. We go after things because this thing is the most important. I love me. I do my own thing. And we look at God and we say, I will not honor you. I will not give you things. I will do me. And that, friends, is essence of sin. And you can do that indifferently or you can do it indignantly. You can shake your fist at God and say, you will never get my praise. Or you could just not care at all. But regardless of how you do it, we are all guilty of it. We are all living for self. 
Friends, think about the culture we live in. Think about the products we consume. Everything about us speak to this end. Worship self. YouTube. We're we're right now broadcasting on YouTube. Uh, Thank you, by the way, those who are joining us on YouTube. Praise the Lord. But what is YouTube's slogan? Anybody knows? Broadcast yourself. All right? Broadcast yourself. Anybody Burger King fan here? I'm not going to judge. Don't worry. Burger King slogan, have it your way. They're going to tell you what to do, but the slogan is have it your way. Right? Broadcast yourself, have it your way. Um, Visa. Anybody uses Visa? Who used Visa yesterday? Right? We all did. Visa. Everywhere you want to be. You see the emphasis? It, it, and it's everywhere. Uh, Nike, just do it. Do what? Just do whatever you want to do. Just do it. Be the overcomer. L'Oreal, right? Makeup company. Because you're worth it. Put it on. You see, it's everywhere around us. Pepsi. That's what I like. Or Sprite. Those of you who like white water. Obey your thirst. Listen, you look at all the billboards everywhere you look, the point is the same. We worship self. Therefore, the only way that I can sell my product to you is if I can market it in a way that it will benefit you. That's it. It's everywhere. And God says, listen, there is no excuse for such heinous action. God is determined to uphold his holiness and justice, so he reveals his wrath by giving men over to what they were seeking. They were seeking stuff. God gives them over to stuff. Indulgence of sin. In in essence, he is saying, you want to do you? You want to obey your thirst? Well, I'll make you thirsty. I'll make you thirsty. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. You want to do you? You want to pursue your lustful desires? Well, in verses 24 through 25, God gives them up. He says, you want to do it? Go. Go do it. In verses 26 through 27, God gives men over to homosexuality. You want to do you? And you want to suffer the consequences of doing you? Well, go. This is God's judgment right now that is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When we consider the world we live in, when we consider the society we live in, we're not just waiting for sinners to be judged. Yes, sinners will be judged, but friends, today, sinners in enjoying their sins, and you would think, man, where is the end? When we talk about homosexuality, when we talk about transgenderism, eight-year-old girls are becoming boys, seven-year-old boys are becoming Girls, this is the fulfillment of Romans chapter 1. God gives them over. You want to do you? You will regret it sooner or later. He gives them over to all kinds of sins in verses 28 through 31 and ultimately to degradation so that we look at sin, our leaders looking at sin, and they applaud it. And although they know the ordinances of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them and they make laws that legalize sin. So what is God's response? God's response is wrath and death. Death. Worthy of death. Friends, Adam was judged because of disobedience. Sin entered and sin reigned in death. Reigned in death. Verse 32 that we just read, and all who practice such things are worthy of death. 
If you flip to Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, spiritual death, physical death, and eventually eternal death. What is this? This is the definition of condemnation. This is separation. This is rejection. Because rejections of, a rejection of God brings condemnation. All have sinned. And that is the outline of Romans 1 through 3. Gentiles are sinners, Romans 1, 18 through the end of chapter 1. And Jews may be looking at Gentiles and are saying, poor sinners. And Paul says, no, 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 not so quick. You are also sinners. Romans chapter 2 and half of chapter 3. And then he concludes, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Not even one. Man, some of you are not convinced that you are depraved. We're not convinced of our own depravity. I mean, we don't think that we're that bad. And that is why Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it just it doesn't pack the same punch that it did for Paul. This is such a, an amazing statement that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You should all be leaping. You should all be right, singing, shouting, rejoicing because you know you are reminded of, of chapters one through three of Romans going all the way back to Adam. And why aren't we excited it's because we forget, or maybe we never really understood the, the depth of our sin and offense before God. And so Paul says here in Romans chapter 3, verse 8, that because of who we are and because of what we do, our condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. Beloved, this is the bad news that we're condemned and even the worst news is that we can do nothing about it. Nothing. But going back to our big idea, if you would, I said that recalling your condemnation in Adam is sort of the prerequisite in order to taste the sweetness of your freedom in Christ. When you understand your depravity, when you understand who you were, and then someone comes up to you and gives you a get-out-of-jail card. And that's lightly putting it, as we will see in Romans chapter 8. Oh, you will rejoice. Friends, the good news here, the news of Romans chapter 8, verse 1, is that we are no longer condemned. We're no longer in that state, in that condition. And Paul wants to reassure Romans, Roman Christians of this truth. Friends, he wants them and us to taste of Christ's accomplishment so that they would never lose their flavor. And this is where I want us to now look at verse 1. Savor, savor your freedom in Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Savor what? No condemnation. He says this principle of sin and death no longer has power over you. You are completely free from debt and penalty. You don't own anyone, anything. No charge can be made against you. It could stand against you. No one can condemn you now because you are free to go. It's like your case is dismissed. You are on death row, but you were set free, and your record is clean. And so when you apply to a job and they say, hey, can we check your background? You're not worried about having red strikes on your record. Why? Because it's all gone. You are set free. When? When are you set free? Therefore, there is now. And I... I want us to think this is so important. It is in the present. Why is this important? Consider what Paul has been saying in Romans chapter 7, this ongoing struggle with sin. Romans chapter 7, look with me at verse 19. Paul says, for the good I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I want to do. Is this your experience this morning? You've come to church and 
You are conscious, or maybe most of you, that you are not what you want to be. That you sin, and you sin even as a believer. I, I want to do good, but I don't, I can't. And, and in fact, I end up practicing the evil that I don't want to do. We fall short again and again and again. You know, we struggle. There are ups and then there are downs. And, and we can relate to what Paul is saying here after he describes his struggle. And, and we can almost like cry out with Paul in Romans 24, 7, 24, wretched men that I am, who will deliver me from self? I want to do what pleases God all the time, 100%, but I, I can't. And friends, in Romans 8, which follows his outburst in 724, Paul says, there is now, 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 now. Circle it, highlight it, underline it. There, he's not speaking of a later time when we will get our act together. It's right now, in the middle of a struggle that God is looking down upon his children who place their faith in Christ and he loves them and he accepts them and he says, this person right now who's in the middle going, going through a fierce battle, I will never condemn him. Now. And friends, this is the good news. This is the beauty of this news. I mean, you almost... Think about it. Think about it. Maybe you are in the middle of this struggle with sin. Maybe, maybe you were a month, a week ago, and, and, and you're looking and you're reading these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. You can hardly believe it. Think about it as this, this verdict from the last day when you will stand before God and God will announce and pronounce you just. It's almost like it's brought forward into now. So that what is true of you then is true of you now, and what is true of you now is true of you then. In Christ, Paul means for us, friends, to enjoy our salvation right here, right now, no condemnation. Who can enjoy this salvation? Who can taste the sweetness of the freedom that we have in Christ? Who can savor it? Those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ. Not all sinners but sinners who are in Christ. And to be in Christ means that you have an actual relationship with Jesus Christ in which you reap all the benefits of his life, of his obedience. You are united to him. This is where we get this doctrine of union with Christ. You have placed your faith in Christ. You have been born again. That's why verse two says, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. You were set free from condemnation. Now you are alive in Jesus Christ and you will be alive forever before up until the time you will see him face to face and then forevermore. This phrase in Christ or in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ or in Jesus is repeated in the New Testament over 165 times because it's meant to emphasize something. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, think about it uh, in Genesis 6. We were just in Genesis 1 through 3. Think about Genesis 6. Um, man begin to multiply, right? Their wickedness multiplies so much so that Genesis 6, 6 says that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually and God is determined to wipe men out. He is determined to judge the world and by grace, he calls one man, Noah, to experience salvation with his family. And Noah, by faith, listen, nobody has ever seen rain coming down from heaven. So he is this crazy guy who everybody's like, man, what are you doing? By faith, he says, Lord, I've never seen this happen before. But you're telling me to do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to place my faith in you and I'm going to build this ark because I think the rain is coming, and the reason why I think the rain is coming is not because I saw it yesterday, it's because I believe your word. And God instructs him to build the ark, he builds the ark, he gets in the ark, inside the ark with his family, and then God's judgment pours down and everyone dies, and who is left living and praising God? Noah and his family alone. 
They were not harmed because they were in. They were enclosed in this ark. And this is the picture of us being hidden in Christ. Because you're in Christ, there is now no fear of condemnation. Because he was condemned, as we will study next week. So, so there can only be one application here, and that is this overwhelming sense of gratitude and thankfulness, worship to God. What we failed to do then, we must do now to acknowledge him as God and to give him praise. We, we sing this song, right? And can it be? And the final stanza goes like this. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. I mean, so what does it look like for us as we wrap up? What does it look like for us to enjoy this salvation, this new standing with God? Well, so often, so often we, we don't operate under this glorious reality that we're not condemned in our Christian life. We, we fail to do what this verse is calling us to do. We forget that Jesus literally accomplished everything that we ever need for our salvation and so we result oftentimes to two things here. We either pretend or we perform. Pretend or perform. And as I already mentioned here, you know, even as we believe in Christ, we pretend that we're not as bad as the Bible says we are. You know, we look at this list from Romans 1 and we say envy, you know, slander and, and lust and wickedness. And we're like, well, yeah, I mean, a little bit, but not as bad as the guy on the other side of the room. Like, that's for him, right? And, and we begin to doubt, that's not me. And all, although we know deep down, right, that, yeah, it probably is, but, but we make excuses and we pretend to others that we're not as bad. We don't confess our sins. We, we just don't open up. We're quiet about our sins. We're quiet about our sins to our wives, to our children. We never say, I'm sorry to our children, we don't want them to believe that we're sinners, right? Don't we want to uphold this godly standard so that I can be an example in my family? And so we pretend. Or the other side of this ditch is performance, doing stuff. We know that we're bad, and we believe that God's word is true about our evil natures. But instead of trusting and, and resting in Christ, we begin to perform for God. Lord, man, I just, I want to do something good for you, right? And here's the issue. Those who pretend they believe that they're not as bad as the Bible says they are, but those who perform, they believe that God is not as good as the Bible says he is. We question his goodness just like Adam and Eve. So here's the scenario. Let's just assume I sinned and... Um, Man, when I sin and I'm a performer, I say, man, God, God must hate me today. He must be absolutely disgusted and he must be annoyed with me today. So I'm just going to, you know, I'm just not going to attend our fellowship group. I'm not going to go to our life group. I'm just going to sit on the side here for a few days, maybe get my act together. And I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to do really good. I'm going to try to read the Bible. I'm going to try to pray. And then maybe I'm going to help around the house. And I'm going to do some good things so that I can garner God's attention again and perhaps maybe get back into his good graces and be blessed. I want to gain favor with God again. So I read, I pray, I do all of these things, and then I say, Lord, please forgive me, but look at me now. I'm better. I can please you now. Friends, I personally can say this is a miserable way to live. Miserable way to live. And there is another way. There is another way, and that way is the biblical truth that rings loud and clear that if you place your faith in Christ, God is not angry with you ever. You are accepted in the beloved. He is for you. You can live in this freedom when you mess up. He doesn't suspend you. He doesn't threaten that he will give you documents that say you're no longer my child. That is not what God does. You are his child, and nothing will separate you from the love of God, as we will see in Romans. We'll finish with this quote from Martin Luther. He says this, 
or uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, rather. Some seem to think of the Christian as a man who, if he confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness, is forgiven. At that moment, he is not under condemnation. But then if he should sin again, he is back once more under condemnation. Then he repeats and confesses his sin again and asks for pardon, and he is cleansed once more. So to them, the Christian is a man who is constantly passing from one state to the other, back and forth, condemned, not condemned. Now that, according to Apostle, is a wholly mistaken notion and a complete failure to understand the position. The Christian is a man who can never be condemned. He can never come into the state of condemnation again. No condemnation. The apostle is not talking about his experience, but about his position, his status, his standing. He's in a position in which being justified, he can never again come under condemnation. Friends, I hope you are encouraged to give glory to God and to praise and to savor the freedom that you have in Christ. And next Sunday, as we come back to these verses, we are going to look specifically at what God did for us because that which we could not do, verse three says, God did. God did. And how what God did, we can place our faith and trust in that. But I want us to think and to recall and to remember that previously those of you who are in Christ today were previously condemned, but in Christ, you are now free to rejoice and free to live for Christ. Those of you who don't have that assurance, those of you who don't have that confidence, call out to Christ. Call out to Christ by faith. Trust him that his sacrifice is sufficient for you to be forever cleansed and by God's will we will continue to look at these verses and see what that means practically then as we live out the gospel father we thank you may our hearts uh, do what we could not do before and that is to to turn to you and to give you praise to honor you as God and as we confess our sins after we continue to fail and we don't measure up. Help us to know that Christ measures up, that he is the one who does it all. Lord, help us not to just move beyond this point. This is very important for us to dwell in. And continue to teach us, Lord, this truth. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.